How long have you been waiting for Christmas? Some have been waiting since the day after Thanksgiving, which I might add is the most natural time to begin the Christmas season. Others of you have been waiting since December 26, 2021. These are the uh, overachievers among us who buy Christmas presents throughout the year, who decorate for Christmas in October. Regardless of how long you've been waiting for Christmas this year, I trust that you found that it was worth your wait. I know my kids even asked, can we open a present early? Can we open presents on Christmas Eve? They heard that lots of their friends do that, as tradition has it. They're like, can we do that? I was like, nope. Not us. We're opening our presents on Christmas Day. And I, I kind of wanted to be Ebenezer Scrooge just so I could talk about it this morning. So I could talk about the buildup in their hearts, the frustration that was about to boil over last night as they realized we had to wait until the morning to open our presents. Now let me ask you a different question. What would you be willing to wait a lifetime for? What kind of thing would make waiting a lifetime worth it? To you? It's kind of a spiritual question, isn't it? What do you love so much? What do you desire so much? What do you long for so much that you'll wait a lifetime to get it? Perhaps it's some sort of personal achievement, the, the top rung in the company ladder, starting a, a successful business venture, winning your fantasy football league. Maybe it's generational wealth, money enough to have whatever you want and just to set your kids up for the same. If you're honest, maybe it's some sort of hedonistic pleasure. Maybe it's popularity or influence within the in crowd. Family harmony, a good marriage, physical fitness, and on and on the list goes. Friends, it seems to me that whatever you filled in the blank with in that in my question is kind of functionally what you are worshiping this morning. After all, our greatest longings often reflect what we adore, what we praise, what we believe can bear the weight of our heart's deepest desires. And of course, the clear message of the Christian scriptures is that what can bear the weight of this type of worship and longing and waiting isn't actually a what. It's a who. In fact, it's the Creator Himself, the God of eternity who entered time and space and assumed our humanity as a baby. Please turn in your Bibles this morning to Luke 2. Luke 2, it's on page 857. If you need a Bible, you can grab that one underneath the seat and turn to page 857. Friends, you might not consider our text this morning a prototypical Christmas text because it's not about Jesus' birth per se, but about an event that happened several days after Jesus' birth when his parents, Mary and Joseph, made the trek from Bethlehem or perhaps Nazareth to Jerusalem to present Jesus in the temple according to the Jewish law. 
Uh, the last two Sundays, each of the last two years, the Sunday before Christmas, I've preached through uh, these birth narratives in Luke 1 and 2. And so although this text may seem a bit random, it's actually in sequence with those other two sermons. And that's why we've come to it this morning. Many of you know the context of Luke 2, but for those of you who don't, let me just set the scene, okay? Uh, Luke is an historian. He was an historian of the early church, and he wrote this gospel of Luke to a patron or dignitary named Theophilus, which he said to give an orderly account of Jesus's life, his ministry, his passion, his death and resurrection. It's likely, friends, that Jesus got the information about these birth narratives from Mary herself, the mother of Jesus, who very well may have been part of the early church there in Jerusalem that formed after Jesus's resurrection from the dead. By the time we get to Luke 2.21, Mary has just given birth to her firstborn son in Bethlehem. And although this, this birth may have seemed ordinary, it was anything but. Luke records that Jesus was not born by natural human generation. Mary was a virgin. She didn't conceive Jesus through Joseph, but through the agency of God the Holy Spirit, just as the angel Gabriel promised. Just like God at the beginning of time spoke and created the world out of nothing, so he gave life to Mary's womb through his mighty power. Mary's boy is utterly unique. Because he was conceived through the creative power of God, not through normal human generation, it makes the uniting of full deity and full humanity in one person possible. Jesus is the God-man. And when Jesus the baby was born, friends, we understand that God entered this world to save his people. We could not get to him, so he came to us. And although Bethlehem didn't roll out the the royal red carpet outside the city that night, streams of light exploded into the night sky as the angelic host heralded the arrival of King Jesus to an audience of lowly shepherds who then sprinted to Bethlehem to find Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in an animal's feeding trough just as the angels had told them that he was. Luke could not be more clear. The days of longing and anticipation are over. God is fulfilling his promises to his people. The king has arrived. The dawn of salvation has broken. We pick up the story on the heels of Jesus' birth. Let's start reading in verse 21 of Luke 2. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angels before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who opens, who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, 
Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And when and his father and mother marveled at what was said about him, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. Or as that footnote in the, your text says, as a, as she lived with her husband, or she lived 84 years after she was married. So she could have been 84 or 105. We don't know. She was a, an old woman. She did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up from that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to, uh, to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, every week here at Redeeming Grace Church, I try to give a main idea of the text that kind of summarizes it that I trust will be the main idea of the sermon. And that's what I'm going to do this morning. Here's the main idea. Here's the takeaway. Your hope of salvation rests on the one who fulfills God's promises. Your hope of salvation rests on the one who fulfills God's promises. Friends, no outline this morning. That's a little different, okay? We're not going to outline the text. I'm just going to walk through each part of it in, in, in some broad detail, some more specific, but I do hope to drive this main point home. Your hope of salvation rests on the one who fulfills God's promises. The arrival of Jesus into this world is not some, some kind of distant story with no ramifications for your life. Friends, the arrival of Jesus into this world is earth-shatteringly good news for you. It shapes your very existence, the existence of all humanity, based on whether or not you will embrace Jesus by faith, just like Simeon and Anna did. And I pray this morning that our text, the Word of God, would summon us to do just that. I don't know if you noticed, Luke falls all over himself and letting us know that in the aftermath of Jesus' birth, Mary and Joseph did precisely what God told them to do. In fact, notice how this entire section is bookended with their obedience to the law of the Lord. Look at, look at the text. So verses 21 to 24 are just all about their faithfulness to keep God's word. And then at the end, Luke ties a bow on this section and summarizes it in verse 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their hometown of Nazareth. So despite Jesus' exceptional birth, his exceptional conception and birth, Mary and Joseph did not consider themselves exempt from the responsibility to keep God's law. They circumcised Jesus on the eighth day, just like the law prescribes. They named him Jesus. The Lord saves, just like Gabriel had instructed Mary to do. And after a month's time, they went to Jerusalem for, for Mary's ceremonial purification, just like Leviticus 12 lays out for Israelite women. Typically, friends, this purification ceremony involved the sacrifice of a lamb. But if an Israelite family 
were especially poor, they could offer a pair of turtle doves or pigeons. The association uh, of turtle doves with Christmas did not start with the 12 days of Christmas or with Home Alone 2, but with Mary and Joseph's purification at the temple. The baby Jesus, whom the angels one month earlier had proclaimed to be the king and lord of all, was born into a family so poor they could not afford a lamb. It's an early reminder of the humiliation and condescension of Jesus to us. For our sakes, he became poor, so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. While in Jerusalem, Mary and Joseph, well, they presented Jesus to the Lord in the temple. They, they consecrated him to God through the redemption ceremony. Just as God had redeemed the firstborn of Egypt through the blood of the sacrificial lamb on the night of their exodus, so all future Israelite firstborn sons were to be redeemed or to be purchased through a contribution to the priests in the temple. I think the reason Luke highlights these details, friends, is not to kind of merely show us something about good parenting, but to highlight Jesus's flawless resume. If Mary and Joseph had kind of just kind of skipped by all of these law-keeping steps, friends, Jesus would not have been qualified to be our Savior and King. But because they were faithful, no one could accuse Jesus of being religiously disqualified to sit on the throne of David. But here also we see Jesus beginning to step not only into his role as the Davidic king, but as the second and better Adam, the sinless Savior who would atone for sinners who trust in him. Jesus has fulfilled the law's requirements through his life, and then he satisfied the law's penalty in his death. And friends, that news should give us great hope this morning. For the rest of our time, though, I want us to look at the stunning events that took place during uh, Mary and Joseph and Jesus's time within the temple complex on that day in Jerusalem. You know, I, I'm sure that Mary and Joseph probably expected their temple experience to be typical of any Jewish family. Perhaps they just wanted to blend in unnoticed, but instead the Lord had other plans. He had made a providential appointment with two elderly believers, Simeon and Anna, whose words teach us more about the significance of Jesus' arrival into the world. I don't know about you, but this text has always amazed me because this is the only time these elderly believers appear in the Bible. We never knew Simeon and Anna before, and we don't know anything about them afterwards. Their, their only significance is this appearance in the temple that day to teach us more about God's redemptive purposes in Christ. According to verse 26, God the Holy Spirit revealed to Simeon that he would not die before he had seen the Messiah, the Lord's Christ. And so when Jesus was brought to the temple at eight days of age, Simeon was moved by the Spirit to come also. And he recognized the child and he took him into his arms and he blessed God. Look at verse 38. In verse 38, Anna also, at that very hour, just happened, right? To come near also. And she likewise recognized the child and began to thank God and speak about the significance of the baby Jesus. Clearly, friends, the entire thing is God arranged. He is speaking through these senior saints. I think together, Simeon and Anna represent the very best of the old covenant people of God. 
They represent the remnant of faith-filled Israel who longed for God to keep his promise and to send the Messiah. I think a perfectly natural question to ask about this story is, is why? why? Why these two? Of all the Jews whom God might have chosen to have the honor to take the Christ into their arms and proclaim his significance, why in the world Simeon and Anna? Well, maybe Luke's description of them gives us a clue. Verse 25 says that Simeon, well, he's righteous and devout with the Holy Spirit upon him. Verse 37 says, Anna scarcely departs from the temple, worshiping God with fasting and prayer night and day. They are both genuine worshipers of God. You know, friends, it's easy in a, in a church full of children, in a church full of young families, to forget the fact that at this pivotal moment in history, God chose to reveal the significance of the Christ through the elderly, through senior saints. If you're an older believer here this morning, I trust this encourages you. You may feel in these later years of your life that you don't have much to give to the Lord, but the Lord has so much to give to you. I pray that you might even use these later years at the encouragement of Simeon and Anna to pursue the Lord Jesus, to model good works, and a life devoted to Christ. We need young and old believers in a church to make it healthy and mature and to grow in godliness. You know what jumps off the page is something else Simeon and Anna have in common, though. Look at verse 25 and 38 and kind of compare them. Both these, these verses tell us that they were both looking and hoping for God to fulfill his covenant promises to his people. So verse 25, Simeon was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Verse 38, Anna spoke of the child to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And we can only assume, right, that Anna spoke to those who were waiting because she too was waiting and looking Eagerly, she shared the same electric joy that Simeon had when he saw the baby Jesus and then broke out in song. Friends, this is not a doctor's waiting room, twiddle your thumbs type of waiting, is it? This is an edge of your seat, can't wait for Christmas morning type of waiting. It's a, it's a longing that causes you to look eagerly for the fulfillment of what you're waiting for. Luke says that they waited for the consolation of Israel and the redemption of Jerusalem. That's just his shorthand for the coming of God's salvation of his people that he had promised from ancient times. I think Luke uses these phrases to shape our understanding of the full and lasting hope that we have in Jesus. So let's just think about those phrases. The phrase, the consolation of Israel. What is that? Well, friends, that reflects Isaiah Chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she is received from the Lord's hands double for all of her sins. Friends, why did Israel need consolation in Isaiah's day? Why did they need this promise of comfort from the Lord? 
because of all of their loss and their misery that they were experiencing under God's judgment in their exile outside the land. They were a war-torn, sin-sick people. They were hopeless and helpless. It wasn't much better when Jesus was born. Now the people of Israel were prisoners within their own land under Roman domination and certainly still marked by the same type of rebellion against God that they were marked by in Isaiah's day. So the consolation that God promises them is is full healing and restoration and forgiveness and joy. God promised to do this through the sending of his Messiah King that he had promised to David so long before. It would be the Messiah, this coming King who would comfort those in misery and give hope to the hopeless through his work and his reign. What about the redemption of Jerusalem? What about it? What, What is that? Well, throughout the Scriptures, redemption speaks to our need to be delivered from powers that still hold us in bondage. Redemption is a work of power to save us from our greatest enemies, just like God redeemed Israel from their bondage in Egypt in the Exodus. I wonder if you're here this morning in need of comfort and in need of redemption. Perhaps your life is filled with pain, and longing because of loss in your life. Or perhaps you find yourself frustrated with a a restlessness and an emptiness because of the things of the world that you have thought or pursued to satisfy your soul. Those things have returned hollow and empty. And you crave something better. Like Israel of old, friend, you need redemption. You need release from the domination of sin in your life and the guilty conscience you live with every day. The specter of death, perhaps this morning, haunts you. You put up a good front, but if you're honest with yourself, you're terrified of what death will bring. And you long for release from those fears, but you just don't know how to get there. Friends, this story is good news for you. Because the only one who can meet those longings and release you from the evil that enslaves your heart is the child that Simeon receives into his arms. It's Jesus. Let's look at our text again, starting in verse 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, to use a military analogy, I think uh, the Lord had appointed Simeon to be a sentinel. Kids, you know what a sentinel is? A sentinel. Okay, well, I'm going to tell you. A sentinel is a soldier whose duty it is is to watch for something, to protect the army by watching. Simeon's duty was to watch for the day that the Messiah would arrive as God the Holy Spirit had promised him would happen in his lifetime. And so and so on that day that Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus came to the temple, Simeon also came, discharging his duties as the sentinel. You know, God had promised years earlier, hundreds of years earlier through Malachi and Malachi 3.1, that the Messiah would suddenly come one day to the Lord's temple. The temple represented the meeting place between God and man. It was the location in the Old Testament that God was revealed in His glory. 
day after day, Simeon would come. He would look and he would leave. Week after week, he would come to the temple month after month, perhaps even year after year. He would come to the temple, he would look and he would leave. And yet he still held on to the promise. This day was no different. Simeon came to the temple. Perhaps he walked into the temple courtyard and surveyed it just like he had always done. But then what should his eye behold? Not a mighty warrior decked for battle. Not a regal king dressed in purple robes. But a chubby one-month-old baby held in the arms of his mother. And the Spirit said to Simeon, that's him. That's the one you've been waiting for your whole life. According to verses 29 and 30, Simeon took the baby up in his arms and no doubt with a quivering voice full of emotion began to praise the God who kept his promise. His words became one of our earliest Christian hymns. And he came into the spirit, into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Friends, in that moment, Simeon realized that God was relieving him of his duties as the sentinel. He could die now knowing that God had kept his promise. And how was that so? Because Simeon recognized that to see Jesus was to see God's salvation. Do you see that in verse 30? When he held the baby in his arms, he held the consoler of Israel. He caressed the redemption of Jerusalem. The tiny helpless baby and the wonder of wonders embodied the very salvation of Almighty God. Friends, the rescue from the penalty of sin and the bondage of death and the suffering of your life, the redemption and rescue that you need, the, the living hope that all humanity groans for, it's not found in a self-help manual. It's not found in therapeutic remedies or in religious activity or in sincere rule-keeping or in the fake hopes of money or power or pleasure. This rescue and hope is found in a person. It's found in relationship with this Christ. The one whom Simeon rightly says is not only salvation for Israel, but God's salvation that he has prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles, for the entire non-Jew world. This baby would reveal God to the world. He would bring the light of saving truth and hope where only the shroud of dark unbelief had enveloped all of them to, since the fall. Friends, this baby, this Jesus, is the one whom Isaiah in chapter 9 had prophesied, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Oh, friends, no wonder this, this king, this 
This baby infant king would provide comfort to God's miserable sin-sick people. He is the wonderful counselor. He is not just sent by God, but is himself the mighty God. Turn quickly back to Isaiah 52. I want you to see this passage. Isaiah 52. It's on page 612. I think Luke likely has this passage in Isaiah 52 in mind when he wrote about the consolation of Israel and the redemption of Jerusalem. Let's start reading in verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns the voice of your watchmen. They lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. Here it is. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Friends, this is what Simeon and Anna knew God was bringing to pass. The deepest longings and the need of humanity was being met in that baby. He is the comforter and the redeemer and the salvation of our God. You say, John, how how is this? How is this the case? How is humanity's deepest hopes, how are my greatest longings satisfied in a little baby? That, That really makes no sense to me. Well, of course, friend, this baby grew. He would live a perfect life according to the law for the Father. All the pride and lust and disobedience to parents and greed and anger and bitterness that you succumbed to, Jesus never did. He conquered every temptation. He lived the life that you and I should have lived but failed so miserably to live. And yet, In spite of that perfect record of righteousness, despite his endless compassion that he displayed in his miracles and teaching, he was rejected by his own people. If you were to keep reading Isaiah's prophecy, just where we left off, just flip over the page, you would see in chapter 53, Isaiah foretell that the Messiah, the Christ, the servant of the Lord, he would suffer and he would die to rescue his rebellious, wayward sheep. How will he comfort his people? How will he bring redemption? He would be crushed by God for our sin and so atone for them. The Bible's clear teaching is that every one of us has rebelled against our good father. We spurn his loving rule to rule ourselves, to be the captain of our ship, to be the master of our fate. Friends, instead of worshiping Him, we naturally worship ourselves and gods of our own making. God created you to worship and enjoy Him forever, but instead you do what I do naturally. We look for cheap substitutes to satisfy our souls. Friends, if you're here and you're dissatisfied by your life and the emptiness of, of this world, don't, don't you understand that those things were never intended by your Creator to bear the weight of your worship? 
They cannot do that. Only God can bear that weight, and only He can satisfy your deepest longings. Not even good things. Listen to me. Not even good things like a, like a solid marriage, happy children, a well-paying job, as wonderful as those things are, they cannot satisfy your deepest need and longing eternally. They cannot fill the God-shaped hole in your soul that He has created to be there. Only He can fill that. And because we have spurned the worship of God, because of our, our really our treason against our holy King and good Father, we deserve death. It's just. We deserve eternal, infinite judgment that accords with His eternal, infinite goodness that we have rejected. And yet, because of God's great love, He promised that the Messiah, the mighty God, the wonderful Counselor, would give Himself willingly as an atoning sacrifice to satisfy God's good and just wrath for those very sins that I've just described, for all who would trust in Him. Even your sin, even the darkest shame that resides in the corner of your heart, friends, Jesus took upon Himself if you'll trust in Him. This is what Simeon was getting at when he turned to Mary in verse 33 of Luke 2. Verse 33 of Luke 2, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Friends, in this, in this cryptic message to Mary, Simeon says that there, there's a, uh, kind of a, a dark and costly side to this salvation. There's a piece of this wonderful, joyful news that is, that is extremely hard. The light that brings hope to the nations will also expose sin and call them to repentance. So really, in this sense, Jesus divides, doesn't he? That's what Simeon means, that he's appointed for the, the fall and rising of many in Israel. He's the dividing line upon which some fall and some rise. As Simeon said to Mary, Jesus was appointed by God to be a sign that is opposed. He's going to be the object of hostility and rejection. Simeon tells Mary in verse 35 that this hostility and enmity against Jesus will touch Mary herself. Simeon says, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Think about it. If you know the story, Mary's future would include things like the family's flight to Egypt to evade murderous Herod. It would include watching her son be misunderstood and ultimately rejected, betrayed by one of his closest friends, shamed by his enemies, and then crucified in agony upon a Roman cross. I wonder if when Jesus cried from the cross, as John records in chapter 19, woman, behold your son, if Simeon's words flooded into her mind. The sword that divides humanity between those who believe and those who don't had now pierced her own soul as she watched Christ give his life in love. Friends, Jesus is the great comforter because He provides a type of hope and peace and consolation that we could never provide ourselves. Forgiveness from the eternal penalty of our sins. He is our redemption because He paid the price to set us free from our bondage to sin. He unshackled us. He rose from the dead on the third day to conquer death itself. 
So friends, if today you will trust in this Jesus as your only hope, as Paul said, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you will believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, if you'll bow your knee to him in repentance and trust him in faith, you can know this eternal hope and consolation and redemption. The light of the nations will be your light, even as the peace-giving mercy of God floods your soul. What are you waiting for? What are you longing for? Could it be, friend, that God has intentionally, listen, could it be that God has intentionally disenchanted you from the things of this world in order to enchant your heart with the only thing that can satisfy it? Maybe this morning he wants to set your gaze like Simeon's gaze on Jesus so that you embrace him with a heart full of faith to receive him as your savior and as your king. Beloved, I've directed much of this message to non-Christian friends here among us this morning. But, but Simeon and Anna provide quite an example to us believers, don't they? They not only embody faithful Israel since they saw Jesus, they remind us too that we also wait, don't we, for our full consolation, for our full redemption. So Christian, are you in need of comfort this morning? As I asked earlier, is your heart grieving a loss? Is your marriage or family perhaps just racked by brokenness this Christmas season when you want so bad for it to be whole? Have you come to church to a gathering that's supposed to be a, about the celebration of the King of Kings, but you've forgotten the joy of your salvation. Jesus came in His first advent to heal, to heal the brokenness, to deal with sin's penalty and sin's power, but He will come again to deal with sin's presence, to release us from all the ravages of sin's curse in this world. Friends, when Jesus returns... He will right every wrong that's ever been done. Do you realize that? Every wrong will be made right. He will undo every sad thing. And in an instant, all the sad things will become untrue. Cancer will die. Alzheimer's will be but a distant memory. Mental illness will all be healed. The tears of loss will be wiped away forever. And our King will reign in perfect justice. Brothers and sisters, let's be reminded of where our true consolation and our true redemption is found. It's not in getting what we want in this life, but it's found in the Lord Jesus. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. My daughter Hadley's class at her school has just got done reading C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe <clears throat> together. And uh, of course, for much of this story, as I, we've talked about even in different sermon illustrations, the, the land of Narnia is under the, the icy spell of the White Witch. As the book says, it was constant winter in Narnia and never Christmas, as Mr. Beaver told the children. 
At one point in the book, Mr. Beaver began to tell the children about Aslan, the king of the wood, the only one who could break the witch's spell. Edmund then naively asked Mr. Beaver, she won't turn him into stone too, will she? The Lord love you, son of Adam. What a simple thing to say, said Mr. Beaver with a great laugh. Turn him into stone? If she can stand on her own two feet and look him in the face, it'll be the most that she can do. And more than I expect of her. No, no. He'll put all at rights. As it says in an old rhyme in these parts, wrong will be made right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. You'll understand when you see him. Hebrews 9.28 says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly are waiting for him. When he comes, may he find us so waiting, like Simeon and Anna of old. Friends, our God will keep his promises, every single one of them. Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning for giving us this story of Jesus' presentation in the temple of what we have learned of our great hope through the response of Simeon and Anna. Oh Lord, I pray this morning that you would indeed, through the Lord Jesus, fulfill our deepest longings and be our greatest hope. If indeed there are those here among us who don't know King Jesus by faith, who have not had their souls satisfied eternally through faith in Him, through a relationship with their Creator, through faith in Jesus. Oh Lord, continue this work even now. Well, Lord, I pray that they might have the boldness and the courage to take one of us believers aside and say, hey, tell me more about this. Tell me more how I can be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus. Oh Lord, I pray that they wouldn't hesitate out of any type of fear or uh, out of any type of awkwardness. Oh Lord, that they, you would give them the courage through your spirit to even push past that. Oh Lord, bring them to faith in Christ even on this Christmas day. Oh Lord, for those of us who are Christians, we thank you for the hope that lies before us. Oh Lord, may you find us till the end, waiting eagerly, expectantly, leaning forward, longing for the day that Jesus will break the sky and come again and make all things right. We praise you in his name on this day. Amen.